pitch explodes. What was your mindset when you stepped in the batter's box? Go yard. I mean, I'm a pitcher. Why not swing as hard as I can? He was so worked up, he vomited on the sideline and then just kept on yelling at his teammates, Steve. <laughs> Coach, Minshew mania, the mustache sensation has taken over Pullman. Well, I don't know. I don't even think he had a mustache when I recruited him. I don't recall. If becoming a sideline reporter for ESPN didn't make me popular, this thing did. I've been getting offers for it all day long. All right, guys, here we go. We're going to have one team, one heartbreak. All right, now we're going to play for each other. We're going to have each other's back. We're going to win this ball game. One team, one heartbreak. Here we go. go. That might be the best sideline report in the history of sideline reports. <laughs> Hello and welcome into another episode of the Sideline Pass podcast. Chris Button, Allison Williams, Molly McGrath here to share all the juicy inside details of our games from this past week. Uh, there were some good ones. There were some games that we thought would be really good ones that didn't turn out to be so much. Allison, your game, Miami Clemson had all the hype. And after such a great day at games, we were so excited to see a nail biter and it was anything but I know and we were due too. like that that prime crew with Herbie and Fowler every game they've done this year has been a blowout it's been completely lopsided um so we all felt like all right we're due for a close game we're finally gonna get it I think the opening drive kind of set the tone Clemson you know was facing a three and out and on third down Quincy Roche lined up offsides and that penalty kept the drive alive and you can't give Clemson anything because they're just too talented. So that ended up in a touchdown. And it just kind of set the tone of the, the dumb penalties for Miami. I don't know if they were too ramped up or what, but there were so many self-inflicted wounds. And still they were kind of in it. Um, it felt like at least, but they just couldn't get anything going offensively. They became really one-dimensional. I, both teams thought that the matchups on the outside would determine the game. And I think for Miami, they did because they couldn't get anybody open on the outside. And when they did, the receivers dropped passes. Um, and then that made them one-dimensional. And when you're one-dimensional against that Clemson defense, good luck. Um, Derek King couldn't get the run game going. Cameron Harris couldn't get the run game going. The, the O-line, I mean, it just, everything up front was a disaster for Miami. So it was a tough night for the Canes. Clemson reminded us all why we should never doubt them at the beginning of the season. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it was an interesting half, too, because Miami had not scored a touchdown to that point. They just had a field goal. It was 21-3. And uh, with, you know, three seconds left to the half, Dabo decided to attempt a, like, 61-yard field goal. Mind you, they'd had a field goal blocked already. And um, Miami put someone in the end zone just in case, but they didn't even need them because it ended up getting blocked at the line of scrimmage and returned for a touchdown. Uh, so that, you know, set up kind of an interesting half with, with Dabo. Um, and then in the second half, you know, Miami actually came out and played well defensively to start that second half and they got some things going offensively. And I thought like, okay, maybe, maybe they will be all right. And um, Clemson just pulled away. So it was a tough night for my Canes. It, it, it was hard to watch, but honestly, you guys, like I, I was trying, I was trying not to get too excited about Miami. Right. And look, it ended up being a 42-17 blowout. But I honestly still think there's positives for Miami. Like they are so much better, even after that outing. They're so much better this year than previous years. And they have an identity on offense. They have talent on defense. Clemson is just one of the best teams in the country. Like, mm -hmm. what, there's probably three teams in the country that can hang with them. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe only two. We'll see once Ohio State gets playing. So 
it's, it was tough to watch as a Canes fan, but honestly, like, I don't think it was all doom and gloom for Miami just because of the level of competition they were going up against with Clemson. I mean, they have a freaking NFL quarterback and an NFL running back. Like, <laughs> honestly, th- both those guys should be playing on Sunday this week. So you watch them and it's like, you can't take your eyes. Off. Like it, they are. ETN is like the quietest of reigning ACC two-time player of the year. Right. Like, yeah, literally it's so crazy. And you just look up and he's got like 125 yards and three touchdowns. You're like, dude, this guy, like, you can't bring him down. He's, he's yeah. so good. They're so dominant. They look like the number one team in the country. I don't know if anyone can hang with them. Um, Alabama didn't look like the number two team in the country going up against Ole Miss. I had that game. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, Allison, you mentioned halftime with Dabo. I believe that Dabo Sweeney is one of the hardest people to interview because he means well, but he just goes off on a tangent. And your interview, like, all you need to do is give him a mic. Mm-hmm. And he's just going to go into whatever direction he wants to go in. So take us through your halftime interview with Dabo, especially after that field goal. So you're right. He he almost always goes. Um, and this time he kind of didn't. So I asked him about the decision to kick the field goal. And he said... How did you terrible- ask it? Did you say why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, okay. Dabo, um, take me into the decision to kick the field goal and your reaction to what happened. Because I wanted yeah. him... You know, I wanted to hear why he did it and then how badly it turned out and the impact of that. And he just said, totally stupid, completely my fault, dumb decision to do it. Um, should have done it. And that's my bad. And, but he was actually pretty short. Um, so I wanted more and I'm like, okay, how do I ask a follow-up um, to this? And I, I'm not sure if I would have re-asked the follow-up again Um, but I just asked him like, how much did you weigh, you know, the risk and the possibility of them returning it when you made the decision? He's like, yeah, I thought about it. Like, of course I thought about it. Um, just a bad decision. He goes, it would have been a great decision if we would have made it, but we didn't worst coaching decision in my career. So, um, I was happy that I asked a follow-up to it because I did feel like there was a little more meat on the bone because he was so short the first time. Um, and then I just asked him because that was the only touchdown they had allowed in that half. I just kind of asked him, you know, about his, his defense um against Miami because we were you know like you said we were hyping up Derek King and and the weapons Miami had and their tight ends and none of them had done anything to that point so I did want to end on like kind of a positive with him I mean they were up 21 10 it wasn't like it was a bad first half but that definitely changed the momentum and kind of the feel going into the half um so that was what I asked him I got like a little you know criticism from all the the trolls and stuff I think I was called a bitch, but um, that's all good. I'll own that. <laughs> Whatever. Do, <laughs> you did your job. I think the best interviews are where you follow your instinct and you go like, you think an interview is going to go one way. Okay. I'm going to ask Dabo this and this, and then he says something and it doesn't feel right. So you want to follow your instinct and you want to get that extra meat off the bone. I mean, the quote, him saying worst decision of my coaching career, thank God you asked that follow-up that you did. I think it's a good lesson for young broadcasters to follow their instinct. And if they're still wondering something in their head, like, hmm, there's still something more here, people at home are probably wondering it too. So I think it was a good thing that you asked that because that was the story of the half. Like, of course, Clemson's blowing them out. But it's that decision that was really the story. So I, good job by you. Yeah. And I always, that's why I asked you how you worded it. Cause we've had this discussion before. If you say, why'd you kick the field goal? It becomes accusatory. Mm-hmm. Like that was a, you know, I'm thinking that what you did was stupid. 
therefore, like, how do you word it in a way that you really want to know why, but you don't want to ask it in a way that is suddenly they're going to be like, right. excuse me. Yeah. So that was a good way of paraphrasing it. Of course, people, yeah. people just can't get off their, especially by a nighttime game when someone's had a few <laughs> beers, like they can't not get off their social media. It's so easy to get mad at a sideline reporter when you're sitting at home on your couch. Come on, guys. Um, I've Another thing that I think is worth talking about, Allison, because that game was something that we all thought was going to be the first time that Clemson was really challenged this year, and they weren't. They were so dominant. And when a game gets away from you, when a game turns into a blowout, as a broadcaster, you approach it in a little bit of a different way. There's a shift because the storylines shift. I think this is a good conversation to have for any broadcaster in how you cover blowouts. Um, how do you guys think that you cover the blowout and how, how is your mindset different in that situation? I think one of the first things that happens when the game stops being entertaining, you try to be entertaining. So as a broadcast, you get into more storytelling mode, big picture conversations. Um, Maybe you get into more of the individual player stories. If those players are having good games, that's where it gets tricky. Like a lot of my stuff that I had prepared was on Miami and their guys weren't doing anything to justify telling these stories. So it it makes it difficult when you have some really good stuff and it doesn't pan out to fit it in the course of the game. But I think the two directions that people tend to go in any broadcast um, when it's a very lopsided game is storytelling and then big picture especially for, you know, like, how does this change the way we view Clemson? You know, how does it change the way we view Miami? Um, And you can get into, you know, more national conversations. And I noticed too, like, I think the, the need to do the play by play for each play changes, like it becomes more, I think of a conversation. Totally. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it, it's funny because I went into the Alabama Ole Miss game thinking that I was going to have a blowout. Mm-hmm. And so I changed the way I approached that game because I thought that Alabama was going to be so dominant. So in the first first quarter, I'm saying to myself, all right, I'm staying on Ole Miss's sideline. Alabama is the number two team in the country. They're the story, but I want to give a balanced view of both of these teams. And I want it to be a balanced broadcast. So I'm going to stay on Ole Miss's side right now. I'm going to tell the stories I need to tell about Ole Miss. And then when the game gets away and Alabama's the story, I will then, you know, talk about Alabama and stay on Alabama's sideline. Well, joke was on me because I was just (laughs) running back and forth all night. And I was on Ole Miss's side probably until there were maybe four minutes left in the game because it was such a close game. And it does affect the way that you cover things, you know, like – Allison, I had information from you on the Clemson-Miami game in my back pocket in case this game got away from us, things that I could talk about in the second half with our broadcast booth. I wasn't able to get any of that in. Um, No stories other than observations from the sidelines in a game like that because the game really tells the story. Um, And that's that's a more challenging game as a a sideline reporter, I think, because, well, it's challenging to do a blowout, but it's it's very challenging – in a game where it's really close because you can't get in because mm-hmm. the game is really telling the story. Nothing is more important than that. Um, there were a couple things that I wish I could have told. I was really, really impressed by Ole Miss's quarterback, Matt Corral. I don't think I've seen a quarterback with that kind of grit and fight in him since maybe like an Eric Dungy with Syracuse where his offensive line was lacking. Like, 
he had his left guard had a broken hand mm -hmm. and was blocking up front with a cast on. And, um, you know, so he, it was all up to Corral and Corral was like basically willing his team to win in extending plays. And so that was something I wish I got in the game more was the fight that I saw from him. And I think he's a big reason why they stayed in that game. So both of your games were on at the same time and I had a rare Thursday game. So I got to sit on the couch and watch at least for the second half of the day. My dad was over and he went to Bama. So sorry, Allison, Molly, we watched the majority of your game. I, I think um, watching it and I covered Kiffin for a long time uh, when I was in Knoxville and he was at Tennessee, but he almost like outsmarted himself. He tried to be a little too, um, I'm going to get you play calling. And that seemed to be the downfall at the end. I'm curious for you because was it tied at half or it was really close? How did you decide who you were going to get an interview with and why? So at halftime, it was between Saban and Kiffin. I think it was tied or it was a really close game. Alabama had maybe just scored. And I said, you know what? The fact that Ole Miss is hanging in this game is mm -hmm. the story. The fact that Kiffin is the, the student is trying to outsmart the teacher that's the story. And I know that Lane Kiffin is going to be a better interview at halftime because he's so personable. And I know that Nick Saban's going to be pissed because his defense was on their heels all night. They could not handle Ole Miss's tempo. And I think that that's the, the strategy for taking down a team like Alabama is forcing their defense to go fast. Um, I think that's where Ole Miss was really successful. So I decided to go with Lane Kiffin. And he had said earlier in the week, you know, we don't expect to – we don't expect to beat a team like Alabama. They expect to blow us out though. So if we hang around, we know that we're going to frustrate them and annoy them. And then we can start to chip away at them if we frustrate them. So that was the kind of question that I asked him, like, what did you do to frustrate them in the first mm -hmm. half? Um, I love that. I love when you can bring in something that you learned in the meetings that the coaches said and reference it either at halftime or post game. I think that's always a good way to go because it, it gives kind of like um it continues the storyline, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, the, and I think the story of the game was the fact that Alabama was frustrated. Alabama was frustrated by Ole Miss's tempo and Nick Saban was frustrated by his former assistant coach. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, the whole game seemed like a chess match to me. It seems like Kiffin was playing games with Saban from the very beginning. Um, I don't know. If, if anyone didn't see our game opened up on ESPN two because the game in front of us went long. So I don't know if anyone saw the open, but the story that I told was that Ole Miss didn't come out to the field for warmups at all. They did their entire warmup in their indoor practice facility because, and, and, and I know they're going to the practice <laughs> because of inclement weather, cause it's raining. So I go up to Kiffin and I'm like, why is your team in the indoor? You know, just because I want him to spell it out for me. And I go into this game thinking that weather's the story, right? And so I'm like in my parka, ready to be drenched. And it stops raining right before kickoff. And I'm like, well, weather's not the story anymore. I need to change <laughs> my approach. I'm going to change my entire open. So I go up to Kiffin. I'm like, it's not raining that bad. Why are you in the indoor? And he's like, well, I don't want guys to have to change if they do get wet. But also, I think it's going to mess with Nick's head. That is you know? so, so lame. I love it. So him because he's like, well, Saban and his staff and his players are going to come out to the field and not one of my players is going to be out here and they're going to wonder what the heck is going on. So I want to get in their head early. 
and I want them to doubt themselves and I want them to wonder what's going on. And I don't want them to know who we have available. Maybe they'll think that we don't have people available because of COVID. Like I want them to worry that our receivers are all out of this game. And so the, like he set the standard mind games. I'm going to play mind games. And he kept that the entire time going through. Um, and, and I do agree with you, Chris, his play calling, he kind of got a little too cute at the end. I don't know if you remember at the end of the game at one point, there were two runs and they were just terrible runs, completely stuffed at the line of scrimmage. And it seems like Ole Miss completely gave up. And then on third down, it opened up a huge pass play for a first down. And it was like those two runs set up that big explosive play. So Kiffin was like getting a little cute. And I think at the end, Alabama was just the better team. Chris, I want to hear about your game. You did the Houston Tulane game on Thursday night. Houston finally getting to play in their first game of the season after having, what, three of them postponed. Uh, That must have been really frustrating for them. Yeah, so it was a total of four. They had had 53 days, uh, essentially, of fall practice. And what's it's crazy. Like, I keep getting these games where someone has had a really long break like a Memphis did and then this time it was Houston and you really do see what it's like just the how much better a team will get from week one to week two because honestly like they came out there and they looked not good Clayton Toon their quarterback through an interception first play of the game they had 21 points off turnovers or 17 points off turnovers in the first eight minutes it was just bad and like the players didn't look like they were into it and one of the things that like the the guys in the booth I had Bob and Michael Jr. on and you know it was like oh it's just a little bit of dusting off the rust for a first game and watching it like you would think like they would be bursting at the seams ready to play a game they just didn't feel that way and I did a, a report on it, but you know, one of the things you learn in 2020 is when you don't have a lot of fans and a lot of noise, like you have to create your own energy as a player. And they hadn't experienced that before. Like even Dana, we did a pre-kick interview and Dana Holgerson, who I just, he's one of my favorite interviews because he's just so blunt and honest. Like I opened up the interview and asked something about like, the emotions of finally playing this game. And he was like, man, this is my first interview doing socially distance. This is weird. <laughs> like, the, like it's everything you, you we're used to it now. Cause it's week seven when it's a team's first week and another team's played four games. So we thought it was going to be a blowout the other way. And then, you know, an air raid offense can put up 50 points in 15 minutes. So it's good. Our game lasted uh, four and a half, some odd hours. You learn little tidbits throughout like Tulane. Their players have a curfew every single night, 1030 in New Orleans. So, yeah, well, you were like, that's like dinner time in New Orleans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I was just kind of learning the interesting tidbits. One thing that I thought was really interesting from Dana Holgerson's perspective is the way the whole Baylor uh, cancellation went down with their game. It's like their Houston's equipment truck had already rolled up to Waco and it was uh, like a little under 24 hours before the cancellation. And Holgerson was basically like, you know, this is the problem with non-conference opponents is people aren't honest with each other in terms of their numbers. And it said like, how, how are your numbers fine? And then all of a sudden on a Friday, you don't have enough numbers to play a game. He's like, that doesn't add up. 
Uh, so he was, he's like, listen, my guys cried. They were pissed. And he's like, I, I, they have every right to. And so I asked him, I was like, well, what did you do after you learned about the cancellation? And he goes, I went to my pool and I drank a lot. <laughs> That's Dana. That's Dana. That kind of guy. <laughs> Dana, yeah. So just, yeah feeling- it's, it's interesting just that, you know, as things continue to get postponed and, you know, we're, t- we're taping this earlier in the week and Molly already, your game that you were supposed to do got postponed. Yeah, I was supposed to be doing the Oklahoma State-Baylor game. This is the second Oklahoma State game I've been assigned that's gotten postponed. And Baylor is, you know, just a mess with what's going on there, I guess. Um, I think they tried to hold on as long as they could, uh, but they realized early in the week, we, we just need we need to postpone this and cut our losses and move it to December 12th. Um, so I got moved to... UNC at Florida State. Um, so it's it's one of those weird things that, you know, different conferences are handling COVID protocols differently, which I think is going to be really interesting to see how the Big Ten, the Big Ten seems so strict and mm-hmm. how the Big Ten is handling it. We're already seeing a huge disparity between the NFL and college football with how these things are being handled. The NFL is shutting it down right now because of, you know, positive cases. Um, And I'm just wondering, like, outside of that, I do think that COVID is affecting the play on the field. I was asked this by someone, especially after this Alabama Ole Miss game, the highest scoring regulation game in SEC history. It's like you do an SEC game, you think there's going to be some solid defense. There wasn't great defense in that game at all. And you have to wonder how much a player's fundamentals are affected by the shortened, uh, you know, fall camp and the, by the fact that they're not able to play early season games against non-conference opponents, uh, like a Citadel, like tune-up games, you know what I mean? Because you're seeing a ton of mistakes, a ton of missed tackles. I'm interested what you guys think and how like this year has affected the play on the field. Yeah. I mean, look at LSU. They were a mess defensively. I mean, I know Dave Aranda left, but like some of that is is more on the the players and the coaches um, at that point. I think it does. I think this is the first year we've seen the offenses actually really be ahead of the defenses from the beginning, which is so unusual. It's usually the other way around. And week one, I mean, there was no bigger example of that than Navy and Kenya Matololo saying like, I did my guys wrong. I, I aired on the side of safety. And I did no contact and it shows and we look unprepared. And um, I think it has impacted teams and defenses perhaps even more than, than people anticipated. I mean, I remember Saban when I had him against Missouri talked about, there were things that they just didn't get to teach and rep and do because they didn't have the time. And a lot of those were some technique fundamental things because you've got to get your scheme in. So maybe you're not, working on the fundamentals as much as you usually would, especially when you have older guys. And perhaps it is a matter of, you know, not having the time and the reps that you usually would and the warm up games that you usually would, but it's made for some fascinating games. Mm-hmm. I really, I mean, with this conference only in the SEC, like it, things are crazy. Look at the big 12, how insane uh, those games have been. So it, it's made for yeah. some fun and gosh, if we finally got some parody in the SEC. How great would that be? I mean, like, I'm I'm all in on that. Like, Ole Miss giving Alabama a run, Missouri beating LSU. Like, this is fun. It's it's nice to see. I mean, even like Texas A&M beating Florida. That was a huge win for Jimbo Fisher and the Aggies. Um, so I think it's made things certainly interesting. But yeah, there's there's something to be said, and I'll be curious 
to talk to coaches as we go through the season and get their thoughts on that. If they have noticed a distinct difference this year, and you know, it's hard to pinpoint why, but you got to think that the change in preparation had something to do with it. I was thinking that when you said LSU, like there's no one I think who wants a cupcake weekend more right now than LSU than to go down and be on the one yard line at, at first and goal and camp punching in and their defense just not playing well. But I mean, to that credit also, I think I was watching this game, funny story. So I finally get a Saturday off and I have to watch um, my alma mater, Missouri, standing in the corner of a child's birthday party. I'm like the <laughs> mom on the phone trying to watch this last series. And Eli Drinkowitz, just like, we didn't know how we would translate in the SEC. Uh, and to watch the way that he believed in his defense in that stand, didn't call a timeout to get them set, but relied on them and said, I didn't, I didn't want to stop the clock and allow LSU to get set. I believe in my defense. So I think, I think some of the um, parody there, like the big 12, like if anyone watched the red river rivalry, that was just insane. That was exciting. Yeah. I thought Gus Johnson was going to pass out. <laughs> Four overtimes. That's a long time to call a game. That is. I'm curious for you. I've always wanted to know how this is different for everyone, but you guys had rain games. Or Molly, you were preparing for a rain game. Um, How how do you prep? Everything. Notes, clothing, equipment. I don't wash my hair, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. That's the one good thing, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's real quicker getting ready. Um, I throw all my notes in those plastic sleeves. Mm-hmm. So that helps um, rain boots and a jacket and a hat. And I pretty much call it a day. Nothing too special or crazy. I think going into a rain game. So I had my depth charts laminated. We have a laminating machine on the truck. So that really helped. And so I would use my laminated notes, you know, as like a shield to keep my microphone dry and stuff like that. Um, but also going into a rain game, you kind of know that your first story in the beginning of the game is dictated by the weather. So you go into it a little freer. Like I went into this game with no pre-prepared stories and more just like, all right, I'm going to get there. I'm going to go to all the different equipment staffs. I'm going to figure out what they're doing differently. I'm going to look to see extra towels on the sidelines. Like Ole Miss had dry um, changes of clothes in the locker room for halftime like dry cleats, dry pants, everything, just in case they were soaked by halftime. That wasn't the case. But I think it's always good. That's where the fact that you actually have someone on the field really matters is because you start your investigative work the second you get to the field. And that's where your real work really matters. So I went into that game like, all right, I got nothing to talk about. I'm going to go find something. And then I was able to find that great quote from Lane Kiffin saying, you know, I'm having my guys practice in the indoor to get into Nick Saban's head, but also to stay dry. Um, So I definitely, I kind of like rain games. I like weather games because you go into it a little freer and more in the mindset of, well, whatever happens, we're going to figure it out. It's just kind of a mess. And I think with football, a mess is really fun. I'll take a rain game over like a snowy game anytime. So funny story. So, um, I mean, we've already cussed on the podcast today, so we already had have like the explicit logo next to it. So I'm going to talk about condoms here for a second. So I'm at at BYU. Okay. It's going to rain. And there's a tent set up over our audio thing. 
And I see these condoms like laying on our audio thing. And I was like, first of all, of all of the towns for there to be condoms, like sitting on our audio tent, I'm like, what's going on? They use them to cover the microphones. Stop it. Swear. I've never heard of that. But they would cover the microphone with the condom so it wouldn't get wet. I hope it was a non-lubricated because that would get weird, right? <laughs> protection. It's all about protection. Protect the <laughs> oh equipment. Oh my gosh. I've Seriously. never heard that. This Man. is why people come that to the only podcast. only in Provo. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's the, that's the only place, Provo, where you have condoms on the sidelines. This is the only place where you'll hear about stuff like that, I guess, because little tricks of the trade. Like I keep my... I usually keep my mic in a big Ziploc baggie during a game, which well, your audio I, person gives it to you, right? Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I'd rather do that than carry around like a slick condom. <laughs> Listen, some of our crews aren't so fancy that we have an elimination machine in the truck. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I used to travel one, um, on one of my crews, it was like in my bin and I, it was one of the best things because every week when it would rain, I would just laminate my stuff before and it was great. Now I just take those little plastic sleeves with me, which I actually use use anyway because I think it helps me find like the stuff I really need. Um, that's hilarious. I actually for part of the game because I got annoyed with the getting the mic in and out of the plastic baggie, and I like couldn't hit the talk back when I had it in there. So I literally just put it in my rain jacket and like buttoned up my rain jacket and just had it all snug on me. I guess when we were on. This year we're on like different crews, different weeks, but normally when we're with the same crew, it's the same truck that we're using week to week. And I would just keep my rain boots and my rain gear on the truck. It's like those things, like I have some Hunter rain boots and they're great, but they weigh a good amount of, you know, that, that suitcase. That's hard to travel. I, I'm very proud of myself, Molly. You would be so proud of me. I carried on with my Hunter rain boots. So I had a low carry on and I brought them to this week and I just stuffed all my clothes in them and I downsized on my makeup (laughs) and I actually got everything with my Hunter rain boots in my carry on. That's really smart. I actually have never done that. I'd wear my boots and I wear my coat onto the plane, which is really painful and chunky and uncomfortable. And I, by the end of the weekend, I never want to see those boots again. Cause I stood in them for so long and they were, you know, soaked and my feet are killing me and I can't wear this. I can't wear, I like, I hope I don't have another rain game this week. Cause I don't want to have to wear the same boots. <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know, like Molly's um, like the, the number one thing on her bio says I can pack for two weeks in a carry on. Yeah, I can. I can. I, I think it's just planning out your outfits and sticking to that plan. And I can't remember the last time I checked a bag. I refuse to check a bag because it's risky and I would rather have my stuff with me. Hey, so, Molly, guess what? In but, about four months, you're going to be checking a bag if you go anywhere. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. Since I have a kid, I'm going to have to with the stroller and everything like that. Oh, so gonna, you just wait. There's I'm no carry on in now. sight. Speaking of clothing, like someone wasn't very happy with you for how you looked this week. Speaking of people that drink too much and tweet too much. Yeah. Can we go fight John? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. There's a guy named John who's on our shit list. We've already cussed. (laughs) You guys are so great in defending my honor. Um, Yeah. I don't like, whatever. I got a a cruel tweet and I knew it was going to happen. I went into the season like, all right, I'm going to be in the 
the thick of my thick, literally of my pregnancy, um, you know, in the middle of the season. And so I'm probably going to get some criticism, but you know, I, I made a decision. Explain what the tweet said so that anyone that didn't see it. Some guy tweeted, if 2020 wasn't bad enough, now I have to watch you broadcasting with your belly hanging out. He's acting like I'm some hillbilly with like my belly button showing or something. I was wearing a striped t-shirt and underneath my, uh, you know, raincoat and it was really hot. So I unzipped my raincoat and you could tell, especially with the stripes, there's a little pregnancy belly and there's a baby in there. And, um, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm going to rock it. Like, I know that I'm going to be like, extremely pregnant on television, but that's not something people always see. And I want women to see that. I want women to see that you can that's be pregnant. That's so important. Is. Yeah. And and you want to normalize that, right? On yep. television. Because usually when women are pregnant on television, they shoot them really tight. I'm going to shoot you chest up to not show your belly because, you know, we don't want to make things awkward or expose you or whatever. And I told, and all my directors have asked me, how do you want me to shoot you this year? And I said, I don't care. It's not a secret that I'm pregnant. Shoot me pregnant because I think it's important for people to see that. And also, why does it make people uncomfortable? Like that is so beyond me. Like you are a human who also was at one time in your mother's stomach. Like it's beyond that's that's what I wanted to say this this John fellow I was gonna be like listen your mother probably didn't raise you with a comment like that but she sure as hell birthed your ass so how about you check yourself at the door and be thankful for the superhuman that created you and therefore show respect to other women who are doing the exact same damn thing I am like I got I'm sorry I have no patience for that I get more livid over people and I told Molly this criticizing my friends than criticizing me. And when I saw that comment, I wanted to be like, until you can do something as remarkable as grow and create another human life, like you can keep your mouth shut. Bad words. Yeah. yeah. What's your superpower, dude? <laughs> yeah. 12 pack before 9am. Yeehaw. Way to go, buddy. Have yeah. another. It, that was the first time I ever let something like that get to me. And I think it was like a confluence of things. I had been on my feet all day. I was exhausted. I knew I wasn't going to get much sleep that night. I was like worried. Honestly, I was like, I'm only getting three hours of sleep. Is this hurting my baby? You know? So I was just stressed out. I saw that and I, I wanted to call them out and I don't call trolls out and people are like, why do you respond to that? But I do think it's important for women to see, um, us fighting back against things like that. And the, the comments I got from women and the messages I got from women were so encouraging. There were so many women who messaged me saying, Hey, I'm six months pregnant. And I was on the couch with my husband, with my feet up. And I saw you out there working and hustling. And I was, you know, so inspired. And so the thing, the messages I got from women made that whole ordeal worth it because a lot of women are like, Hey, I never like, I never see a pregnant woman on TV. It was really cool to see another pregnant woman on TV. So I think that representation and the normalization of different women's bodies and the normalization of, yeah, I'm going to have a kid and I'm still going to do my job and I'm still going to kick ass. I think it's important for people to see that. So get used to the belly 
you're going to be seeing it all season long. <laughs> Good. Rocket girl. Cause you look beautiful doing it. And um, speaking of badass moms and moms to be, we have one of not only the most talented people in this business. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who can do it all and literally does it all because she too rocked her belly and is now a mama. Laura Rutledge is going to join us. Um, she of course is the host on NFL live and then, over the weekend, filled in for Matt Berry and just did an amazing job. I think she has a time machine, so I'm not sure um, if we have to go back in time to chat with her because that's the only way she gets everything accomplished that she does. But Laura Rutledge is joining us right now on the podcast. And we're so excited to welcome in sports broadcast extraordinaire we could sit here and fill the entire time just listing off all of her duties but so excited to have laura rutledge joining us after um like three hours of sleep this past weekend (laughs) thanks for making some time thank you guys for having me uh big fan of the show guys i think you do such a good job and this has been a crazy time period and for you all to start this and and kind of let this form into a great podcast i just think it's awesome so um thanks for having me i'm honored (laughs) to be here (laughs) laura we're glad you could fit in some time for us yeah, seriously. I so this is like number one priority on my day. When when you told me about this, I was like, okay, uh, whatever else I might have had, we're just moving it all to the side because this is way more important. And the funny thing is, I'm actually in the room in our house where baby Reese usually takes a nap, but this is the best uh internet signal. So baby Reese is having to take a nap in a different part of the house because this is the most important thing. So sorry, Reese. Sweet dreams. Oh I'm impressed God. you have a child that can sleep in a different room on yeah. like a, the regular. My kid's like, if he's not in his crib and it's all dark, he is high maintenance compared to baby Reese. Yes. But baby Reese has to be because she's like, she's lived all over the map, man. How many times did she move in her first year of life for your oh for work? She, she moved one, two, <laughs> like four times. And, and, but sleep is a relative term. It's kind of like a little cat nap here and there. So, um, we're probably freaking Molly out, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be fine. You make it work. And I'm just so in awe of you, Laura, because you're doing so much right now with a young child, like On Saturday, for people who don't know, Laura hosted SEC Nation, followed by something like 14 hours of college football wraps in studio doing game cut-ins and halftime shows. That is a really hard job to do, and that's on top of her NFL Live duties. And, oh, yeah, she was getting ready for a Monday Night Football game at that point as well. So I'm shocked you're even with us. But I would love to hear about how Saturday went for you and how you prep for something like that because my head hurts thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was, um, it was a firestorm, uh, there, I don't know how else to describe it. And I think, I mean, y- you all do this too, where I think we put so much into our prep and we, you know, want to be incredibly prepared and buttoned up. And I think something that I've learned over the past just few years is like, sometimes the prep can't be exactly at the level that you want it to be just because of everything that you've got going on. Um, And having to sort of accept that and then also rely on just a general skill set and say, Hey, I've been here before. I, I know how to do this. And at least I've got that under control. Cause there were times in life when I wouldn't have known how to do that type of show and, and the quick cut-ins that are, you know, trying to get the storyline of a game in, in 15 seconds or less. And then 
you know, doing um, the halftime shows and fill shows for weather where they're in your ear saying, we're going here. Well, now we're not going there. And, and you're, you're navigating all of that while trying to have a conversation. Those are things that um, I knew that I, I couldn't prep for, but I already knew how to do. So I thought, all right, at least there's that. And then I'll just try to have as much as I can, you know, from the college football standpoint. And I, I think the biggest key for me is just having a working knowledge of everything. So every time it makes me an insane person and, and probably makes my husband really sometimes dislike me, but every single time a you know, a tweet update comes from somebody of like, hey, this is happening in college football or this is happening in the NFL. I'm trying to just kind of mentally think about it and then or maybe take a screenshot or something. And that's a lot of my prep, you know, is just that that constant looking at things. But yeah, to be totally honest, I felt very uneasy the whole time because I thought, okay, there's going to be something that I don't know, or there's going to be a name that I don't know, because I haven't been as dialed in as I wanted to be due to all the NFL stuff. So it was, uh, I'm a big believer in thank you prayers. So whenever something goes well, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I'm thankful for that moment and then try to move on to the next. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, just realize that we're all human and uh, you're going to make mistakes and you have to accept it. I realized exactly what you're talking about when I did some studio for college basketball this last season. And the first I think it was like a Saturday I did, I prepped like crazy and I had all these notes and I was kind of in a similar situation because I was still in college football. I hadn't really immersed myself in college basketball to like the level that I would once we got in the conference play. This was like in December and I was still kind of in the thick of college football. And I realized like 90% of the prep I did was unnecessary. And really all you need is a general working knowledge of what was going on in the sport. And you really can just ask your analysts like, Hey, what do you guys want to talk about in this game and tee them up and let them go. But it was a completely different from a prep standpoint. It, it, I almost had to just get uncomfortable. Right. Because I think we're all four of us are very much over preparers and we're used to not using stuff, but this was on a different level because the magnitude of what you had to learn was so much bigger, but the depth of it was so much less. And so once I realized that, and just, again, like the nuances of the studio, it became so much easier and so much more fun. It was kind of like liberating. But those are some long ass days, Laura. <laughs> like, I think I did a noon to 1 a.m. once. And I'm not, I'm not kidding you. I don't know what came out of my mouth after like <laughs> 10 o'clock. I don't, I don't know how you did that and still spoke complete sentences on college football final. Like, what was in your mug, girl? Okay, so it's funny because I, I truly am, uh, I hate to watch myself back. I hate to watch anything back that I did. It just makes me cringe and kind of want to curl up in a ball and die. Uh, but I did watch back accidentally a little bit of college football final because it was replaying. And as I was watching, I was like, all right. I'm getting through that, but that is not my best work. Like there were a few times when, I don't know, I did a bump and I was like, we're going to talk about that next on college football final. What <laughs> like, time is final taped at? Oh my goodness. Well, okay. Usually actually it's funny. Joey Galloway was like, you're good luck. So you have to come back, which I, I will not be coming back. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he, was like, he was like, usually they are out of there by about 2.30 a.m. And we were done by around 1 a.m. So we, we actually did college football final live, which a lot of times doesn't happen. But because of the way the schedule was, 
that day, uh, it just, it just worked out that way. So, um, usually I think it's much later, but yeah, I mean, I, oh my goodness, I was not speaking complete sentences and, and you, and I felt like I needed to pace myself with the coffee intake because sometimes can make me a little shaky. So I was like, all right, I'm going to have one, you know, around 3 PM and then I'm going to go, go back to the well. I just had way too much coffee. So by then I got home and my sweet husband is so wonderful. He, He had a cheese plate waiting for me. That's my favorite thing. When I got home, and a glass of wine, which we call a sushi pour because it was like this much. Um, it was a lot of wine, which I needed. So we, <laughs> I come home to that. And then I was like, golly, we're up until like 3 a.m. for no reason. But I was so wired on coffee that at that point, mm-hmm. I was like, I think I'm just going to stay up for 24 hours <laughs> and call it a day. <laughs> what do you find the hardest role to do? Like, what's the most challenging? You know, in all honesty, right now, my hardest role is SEC Nation on Saturday mornings because we are dealing with, um, and everybody's dealing with this right now with so much of the remote television, but we're dealing with so many technical difficulties. And um, I don't want to get too technical in TV jargon here, but you guys will understand this. Because of our challenges with a Charlotte, North Carolina control room and every single person being in a different place, I'm in Bristol, Connecticut, Tim Tebow's in his house in Florida, Jordan's in his house, Jordan Rogers and and um, Roman Harper is in studio in Charlotte, but we're all over the place. And I, in order to have traffic in my ear, it's a full interrupt. So anytime anyone talks to me, it takes away every single other thing. So what I'm doing at this point is having a monitor where I can read lips while they're talking, while the producer or director is giving me traffic in my ear so that I don't miss what may have been said by an analyst or um, somebody else on the show, which is just, I mean, as you guys know, a very difficult way to do TV. Um, There's no other way to communicate with producers. So if I think that traffic needs to go differently than maybe how it's going, I'm texting them saying like, Hey, uh, Jordan follow here or Roman. No way. Go after that. So it's very, and, and like, you know, of course, writing that show in addition to the other stuff. So I think that is my most difficult role right now. And, and I mean, you all know that that was sort of, I still keep the um, press release that came out, like loaded up on my phone when I got SEC nation, that, that was something that was such a special role to me. So I really care about it. And so I think that's been tough for me just knowing the potential of the show, knowing what it was when we could travel and be in, in front of live crowds and now um, what it is, you know, it's just, it's hard. So that's been, that's been difficult for sure. I, I don't know how you do that. I think I did that for the women's college world series at one point <laughs> for the SEC coverage where there was a full interrupt and it got to the point where I said, just no one talked to me. Let's just do the show blind. Like I can't <laughs> handle this. <laughs> so I don't know okay. how you're doing that. And the most amazing thing about you, Laura, is that you have like seven jobs and a young child and you do everything with the smile on your face and you're so bubbly and happy to be there. Whereas everyone has a bad day and is like, screw this. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't know how you just stay so positive and you're like, you know, posting funny pictures that your husband is sending you in the middle of your 14 hour day. <laughs> That was so funny. That was a really funny one. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, well, Reese, my poor Josh, uh, baby Reese had a, a giant poop uh, while <laughs> I was uh, where I was at, at uh, in the studio. And he, of course, sent me a photo of the poop, which obviously that's what you would do. And uh, it was it was very large. And so I was writing back like, 
oh my goodness, are you okay? Is she okay? <laughs> really, are you okay? Because it's like, okay, but I'm really more concerned about you. Um, but no, I mean, Molly, I think the, the biggest thing for me, and believe me, I have bad days all the time, but I, I even thought about this the other morning when at like 6am when I was driving to the studio on Saturday thinking, I like my dream in college was to be the Florida radio sideline reporter. I thought if I could do that, I have made it and this is going to be amazing. And I still think that'd be a great job. Um, so for me to, to have the chance to do these things and to be, you know, in this stage of life where somehow I've gotten to this point, I, I truly like, first of all, can't believe it, but also am, am really thankful for it. And so I think just living in a place of gratitude all the time. And there was a, a time a little, a few years ago, and, and Chris knows about some of this, where I really was not that thankful. And, and I wasn't really at my best on TV because of it. And I think trying to find a way to, to live in a, a spot of gratitude at all times um, has made a big difference. And, and another thing too, that I learned from Allison and Chris, and I think Molly, you'll see this too, is that becoming a mom it just puts everything in perspective. And, and I didn't feel that way when I was pregnant, like that it would. And I was very worried about it. And I thought this is going to derail my career and all of these horrible thoughts that now um, I just have to accept that I had those thoughts and, and think, how can I think that about my beautiful baby? Um, but, but I really thought my career is over because of this. And what I found instead is that it's, it has made me, because it makes you a better person, it makes you better at your job. And so that, that I think has rung very true for me. So the first person I told at ESPN that I was pregnant was Laura because I was so worried and I felt the anxiety that you felt and I worried that it would affect my career and you gave birth in the middle of a football season and I am, uh, you know, about to pop in the middle of a football season. So, you know, I, I called Laura and she was a great sounding board and I would just love to hear your experience through that, like with the company, because I thought that people would tell me it would be fine and that everything would like go to hell, but I've never felt more supported and more empowered. And I do think I'm better at my job now because I have this like little human in me and it's given me perspective. (laughs) And so I just want to say thank you so much to you for being that sounding board for me. Cause I went from like shaking and feeling nauseous about calling my bosses literally like a week before I was on TV. I didn't want anyone to know to, okay, you know what? I feel okay about this and I can do this because Laura told me it's okay. <laughs> oh, that gives me so many chills and actually makes me want to cry. Um, I, it, I really, I, I took forever to tell anybody at ESPN that I was pregnant and people uh, knew because they were like, you're dressing like um, you're <laughs> pregnant. <laughs> you're trying to hide something here, uh, which is so funny. Cause I was like, how'd you know? I was hiding it. What are you talking about? Um, but, but I really, I was so scared that people would say, well, why didn't you plan this better? You know, why, why are you giving birth in the middle of football season when you have a, a role in college football and all that? And I, I had give, I had put so much pressure on myself for just having to perform all the time for this job and that that was everything to me. Um, and I think, and you know, we had been trying to get pregnant for a long time and, and it just wasn't happening. And so we'd kind of given up and said, this is, must not be the right phase of life. We'll try again down the road. And then boom, that was right 
when I got pregnant and started doing the math and thinking, this baby's going to be born in October. What? Um, <laughs> so, but I, I will never forget, you know, calling our bosses and the same, the same people that you called Molly and them being, first of all, so excited for me, just genuinely excited. Um, and then also saying, Hey, you take your time coming back. Do not think you need to rush back into this. Now, of course, I'm crazy and I did <laughs> rush back into it. So Yeah, you did not take yeah. your time. What was, was so it? Stupid. Two weeks? Three weeks? Three weeks. And That's I was insane. actually doing, I was hosting SEC Nation while wearing a diaper. I'm not even kidding, um, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Nobody should ever do that. That's not a badge of honor. That's a, I'm only sharing that because I would tell anyone and I would tell myself not to do that again. But I also think too that, in those moments, you have to, whatever you're doing is okay. <laughs> and that's what you need to do in that time. And so um, I, I forgive myself for that, for that reason. But I really did feel so supported. And I think even now too, you know, in the juggling of having a, an infant and then now a one-year-old and, and just kind of all these little phases that we've been through, it has been where I've been so supported and, and by colleagues and bosses and um, just peers. And I mean, you all are, are a big part of that too. And I think that that's something that you don't realize. And I remember Chris telling me like, you're going to enter into this amazing club and it's just going to be like, the best thing in the world. And, and that's so true. And then the other thing that I will always remember and, and being so nervous about telling anyone and feeling like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm doing this is when Allison and I were covering the final four together. <laughs> she was the first person at ESPN that I told I was pregnant. So uh, it's really, it's really cool. And she at the time was pregnant and, and we went, I, where did we go, Allison? We went to like a, a um, restaurant and I, <laughs> we were going to, she was like, well, you can get wine. And I'm like, no, uh, I'm actually pregnant. <laughs> it was so cute. So we sat at a bar, two pregnant chicks, lo and behold, we sat at a bar at this like little restaurant that was so cool in Minneapolis. It was just the two of us. And we were like, so excited to actually work the same event and like chat and have some face to face one on one time. And so we, I literally belly up to the bar and I'm like, oh, I have a mocktail. It's like, get a glass of wine though. Like enjoy yourself. And you're like, actually, I'm not drinking either. And I was like, wait a minute. What? what? Like, yeah, so it was, it was really a cool moment. And I felt like this instant connection. Yeah. Um, obviously we knew each other a little bit and, and so forth, but it was like, you're right. Like there is, there's like this club and this connection. Um, and here I am, like, I don't even know. I think I was like six months, probably about five months pregnant. And I'm like trying to tell you everything I know, which is like zero. <laughs> but I just remembered that the fear that I had, like you did, Molly, and I'm sure Chris too, I know you did with, you know, hiding your pregnancy. Like there is a fear of telling your bosses um, that you're about to go upon this like life-changing journey because you know it's going to change you as a professional and you don't know how, especially with your first one and how you're going to juggle it and what you're going to do and the time off and all those things. But I am so thankful um, that I have kind of my, my partners in pregnancy with all of you guys and um, a really supportive company to work for. But nonetheless, it's not easy. We know that. Um, what do you think, Laura, has been the biggest challenge or the biggest thing you've learned after a year of motherhood and juggling, working and baby? Oh man, so many things. Um, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that when, when you have a chance to just be with your child, be with them, you know, don't, don't use that time. And I'm so guilty of this where I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I need to answer this phone call or maybe I need to like 
look at what's on TV or, or whatever. Um, and, and you just realize that like all that stuff can wait. And, and that's something that I'm trying to be really intentional about right now is because I'm away from her, you know, during the daytime, we have our mornings together. So I try to, you know, even though I'm sometimes like, Oh, I just want to sleep for 20 more minutes, but <laughs> I'm like, let's pl- have our playtime and, and do that. And then when I'm back at nighttime, just really spending time with her and, and trying to prioritize that. Cause I think that especially early on and when I, when she was two months old was when we moved to New York to, for the show, get up. And that schedule was so early in the morning that it would provide me with the rest of the day to be with her. But I was so tired all the time that I just felt like I don't even remember what we did then. Like, I think I just tried to sleep all the time and I would sleep when she slept, but then we never really got to do that much together. And, and certainly a, a smaller, younger baby is, is different than what she is now. But um, I just think, I think that's it. Like prioritizing and whatever you can give to them is enough and don't beat yourself up all all the time about, well, I'm not doing enough or I need to go do this for work. It, like it is okay. And, and that's something that um, I am constantly wrestling with and feeling like I'm not giving enough, but yet I know that I need to do some of these other things right now. And that's just the, the phase of life that we're in. So um, that's it. And then the other thing I would say that I know you asked for one thing, the other thing that I, that I have learned, that I think it's really important is, is um, realizing that, you know, other people are also great caretakers of your baby. And that while yes, you're the, the mother and, and you have a special bond with your child, no matter what um, your husband or partner has a great bond with them too, and can bring so much to the table and kind of like hands off and letting them do that. And, and then same with, parents or friends or whoever else. Um, and, and that's good for the, the child to experience. So that's something that, you know, as somebody who likes to, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying control free, cause I think I've moved past that a little bit, but just wants to be in charge and wants to like know what's going on, just letting go a little bit and letting some people, um, influence her is really powerful too. But I think that that's something that a lot of people in our business have a common quality together is that like control or our, like in order to make it in this field, like you have to like give up holidays and like you mm-hmm. gave up everything to do this, make no money, move across the country, all these things. So the like craziness for me, at least when I had Jace was I could drop anything at and go fill in. And then all of a sudden, like, I remember I got asked to do something with the tennis channel and I was like, yeah, I'll be there. And then I was like, wait a second, I have to find a babysitter. Like that was just like mind blowing and I couldn't do it. And it was like, I've never said no to anything before. And so like, I hate that question, like work-life balance. And everyone always asks whenever you talk to students or stuff, uh, which I guess is a good question because I never thought about it (laughs) until I had the kid. And then I was like, well, shoot. So like I'm kind of like you, like my advice to people is like, you're used to being able to give a hundred percent, but there's not a hundred percent mom and a hundred percent work, Chris, like or work, Laura, Allison, or like, it doesn't exist. And you will fall over 
tired, dying, trying to do it. So I always say like when I'm at home and that is my kid time, they get 98% of me. I wear an Apple watch. So if anyone needed to get a hold of me, I usually put my phone away. Like there's still that 2% like, oh, I got a player call coming up that'll take five minutes, eat some popcorn. But then when I'm at work, my work gets 98% of me. And then there's the 2% that's hoping, you know, there's not an ambulance at my house. But like, I try and whatever I'm doing gets that focus of me and it allows you to really soak up the time then and not feel constantly guilty because I wasn't at this. And that's, what's funny about the timing of it. Like you're like, I gave birth during football season. I planned my son around baseball season to um, (laughs) give birth in March. And then lo and behold, the next year I was covering football and basketball. And so now both my kids are always, their birthdays are during conference basketball tournaments. So So, you know what? The schedules never work out with kids. You just, you know, you have it. There's never like the perfect time, you know, it just doesn't exist. No. Laura, I want to hear about your newest job, NFL Live, hosting that show, kind of what getting that assignment has meant to you. You said you still have the press release from SEC Nation. I'm wondering if you have the press release from that and just uh, how that transition has been for you, you know, through your life as a working mom. Yeah, you know, I, um, I've always loved football so much. And, and certainly most of my career has been in college football, but um, really started to, you know, think about the idea that maybe I could cover the NFL a little bit more a few years ago when I got the opportunity to be on Monday Night Football sideline, actually Sam Darnold's debut um, against Detroit, where he threw six touchdowns. And it was just, it was awesome. And I, it, it was, it was always something that I kind of thought was always out of my reach because as I said, I, I really just thought I could be the radio sideline reporter for Florida, maybe. Um, so I never considered it as even a possibility for my career. But uh, when I you know, started doing Get Up and it, we were covering a lot more of the NFL, I just found it to be fascinating. And I think for me, you know, my ties to college football and watching all these guys that we cover go on and have success at the next level was something that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed looking, you know, I would play fantasy football always, but just even watching to see, well, what did Derek Henry do, you know, who I've covered all the way back to high school when he was at Uli High School in Florida and it just these these players that you root for and you want to have success. So um, when the NFL Live opportunity was presented to me, first of all, I was like, Yes, I can't wait. That's great. I'm so excited. Can't believe it. Pinching myself like out of body experience moment to even get that call. But then I think the other thing that's been real special to me is that it's uh, Marcus Spears and Dan Orlovsky and Mina Kimes who are on regularly. And then we also have Keyshawn Johnson, who's on a couple days a week. And those, especially Marcus and Dan, first of all, we kind of came up together on Get Up. And Marcus and I have been working together since 2014 at SEC Network. And so um, to see them kind of be put in an opportunity to have this chance and to work together with true friends. I mean, truly, we are some of the best friends. Uh, that was something that I just think that's not that commonplace in this business where you just get to do work with your friends. So that's been really fun. And then getting to know Mina, who I, I can't say enough about Mina Kimes. She, she's brilliant, first of all. 
she knows more about football than people who played. And they would say that, believe me. Um, and she is so funny. I like, I feel constantly like it's such a gift just to watch her speak and to listen to what she has to say. And she will, without fail, every single time she's on the show, will have me crying, laughing, sometimes on TV, sometimes not. But um, our text threads together have been so much fun. So it's just been a real joyful um experience all the way through so far and and yes we're you know covering an intense sport and it's an unprecedented year and so that's certainly a big part of it but just being able to work with friends and spending all day smiling about whatever they've said is something that I'm real 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 thankful for is it weird not traveling for work is it nice is it like I mean that's that's the thing like when you're covering games you're gone for you know three four days at a time where you're in studio you kind of have like a normal existence is it kind of nice or what's it well like what you all are having to do and traveling to games that I can't even imagine some of the craziness of that I I certainly miss going to the towns like I I loved college towns and you guys know I'm always like Chris would always text me be like where should I eat here because (laughs) I'm always good on the coffee shops and the uh and the the places to eat in these little college towns but I will say the structure of having a schedule and being you know at home to where even if I feel like I'm not as present all the time with Reese as I would love to be I see her every day which is such a wonderful gift. So uh, from that standpoint, I have liked it and and it is, but it's weird. I mean, I never would even unpack my um, like toiletry bag. I would always keep it in the little thing. And then that way I could just put it in my suitcase. And I haven't unpacked that thing for, I'm not even kidding you, like seven years. I mean, it's not the same toiletry bag, but it, you know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> now I don't have to unpack it. It just sits there. It's crazy. You did move, though, during the pandemic out of New York. Um, talk us well, through that and the crazy shipping that you tried to find. Oh, my goodness. I So, yes, we moved. Well, first of all, we moved from Alabama to New York before the pandemic, then from New York back to Alabama during the pandemic because we still uh, have our home in Birmingham. That's where Josh's uh, job is based. And then, you know, from... Alabama slash Connecticut or slash New York to Connecticut. I can't even, um, I can't even honestly remember all the places, but yes, the bit, the craziest thing about that New York move. Well, one of the crazy things it was during a pandemic. So everyone's, you know, dealing with the masks and all the restrictions and all the things, but I had left most of, well, a large supply of breast milk was in the freezer in New York. And we left thinking, Uh, you know what, this pandemic thing, we're not totally sure what's going on. We will be back soon. Like we'll be back soon enough. I was still breastfeeding Reese at that point and, and also supplementing with formula. So I thought it's fine. She'll have plenty of milk. No big deal. Well, then we don't go back for like, I don't know, six months. (laughs) So all that breast milk is in that freezer. And I'm like, you have to use it because it's going to get past the the time when it's going to be good. So I thought, what am I going to do? I said, I worked way too hard for this milk. I am not going to just lose it all. So I found this um, company that uh, via actually uh, Ramona Shelburne used it. And so she told me about it and and I had asked. The milk stork? Yes, the milk stork. She told me about it too. (laughs) Amazing. So I do the milk stork, but here's the crazy thing. And I think I, I told Chris about this whole thing. I, we, we were supposed to like take the box cause you put all the milk in the box and you're supposed to take it and ship it. But because of like the, the thing, so many places were closed in New York because of COVID 
we, I was walking around New York city with a large box of breast milk for like basically 45 minutes trying to find a place that would take this box and ship it. And, and you're trying to keep it, you know, cold and everything. And they, they do a great job of that, but I'm thinking, you know, time is of the essence here. And <laughs> Like, why will somebody not take this stupid box of milk? But anyway, <laughs> it got there. It's a great service. Uh, it got there okay. And, and then the really funny thing was, you know, this is a little inside baseball on breast milk, but it, the taste starts to change a little bit after that amount of time being frozen. So then like Reese didn't really even want to drink it. And I'm like, you pooter, I worked so hard to get this milk here. You have to drink this milk. <laughs> So we're like trying to mix it with other stuff. We're like, okay, maybe it'll make it taste a little better for her. She's like, I know that this is not the fresh stuff, mom. You're trying to trick it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just wild trying to get everything from one place to the next. But listen, I mean, with everything that everybody is going through right now, I still feel real fortunate that we have been healthy and um, safe through all this. And so I think that's what's most important. Yeah, we've all decided that you must own a time machine because that's the only way you are able to do everything you do and like still be sane and kind and funny. So like, let us know, man, like where you keep that, what closet, what room, and, and we might need to come borrow it at some honestly, point. Honestly, if I had it, I wouldn't know which closet it was in because I have no idea where anything is at any point. You'd have lost it in the move. Um, so hopefully this weekend I will be at LSU Florida and I will get to see your beautiful face as well, perhaps before the game. Are you must okay, it's so funny. I actually have, I was just looking. I actually have my uh, my sign here. <laughs> yeah. We're we're gonna do a virtual two bits, which for those who don't know, uh, the two bits cheer is like one of the most special things I think. And obviously I went to Florida, so that's one of the reasons why, but it's one of the most special traditions in college football. So we're going to do a virtual two bits. I'll give you guys a little hint. Reese will be involved. Um, so yeah, you'll probably, I mean, I don't even know what it's going to look like necessarily because we're, we're working on that right now, but Allison, if you end up seeing it, let me know how it comes across. I, it, it'll probably be like, it'll probably fall real flat because like no one's, there's not that many people in the stadium, despite what Dan Mullen. No chance. Um, and <laughs> they're going to be like, what just happened? But no, I'm really excited. It's, it's a, a huge honor. And um, I, another thing that I was like, I cannot believe this. This cannot even be real. But anyway. I'll be cheering for you if I if I get to see. I actually got so excited when I first saw it on Twitter, and I was like, oh, "Laura's gonna be at the game! Oh my gosh, I'm gonna get to see Laura!" And then I was like, "Oh, I bet this is virtual. Yeah. Such a tease! Such a tease!" How, how have you not? I'm so, I, I was shocked when I saw the press release. Like, how you've not already done it? Like, you got to be like one of the top three most famous people to come out of there. Come on! Oh my goodness, absolutely not. Um, and if you think about some of the, I mean, Tim Tebow's done it. And in fact, I was there for the day that he did it because we were there for SEC Nation. So um, that's the level of person who usually does it. So this is like a major drop off. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but whatever. Thank you so much for carving out time in your busy, busy schedule. And you're the nicest person on the planet. And you'll sit here and be like, oh, it's it's my honor to be on the podcast. Like, get out of here. Like, we were just so happy that you have been able to come on and with your craziness of being a mom and being like the best sportscaster uh, at our company. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We, we love you so much. 
I love you guys. And I am so thankful for all of your friendship. And I'm just excited for everybody with everything that we're all doing. It's just, it's real cool. And so um, keep up the good work and just know that I'm cheering you on from a Zoom somewhere or wherever I am. <laughs> it's too much cheering us on. Yeah, right. Oh my goodness. I need to practice my cheer. I'm probably going to be so awkward, but anyway. <laughs> what else is new? Awesome. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Thank you guys for listening to the Sideline Pass podcast. Don't forget to download, rate, and review, and we will see you next week.